Good morning. We continue in our Romans series. So let's start by reading the word of the Lord. Romans 3, 1 through 8. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. As it is written, so you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust bringing, in bringing his wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear uh, your words to us. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and help us understand what you want for each of us to understand about you and your character today. We thank you for your word. Help me to preach it. Please help everybody else to hear it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Romans, as uh, we've been in this, and Jay has told us many times, and it's really true, Romans is a long argument. It goes on for a long time after this, and it goes on before this. So to understand our text today, we need to understand the context a little bit. So let's just go back in very brief summary. In Romans 1, Paul says, hello, I'm going to tell you about the way of salvation. And then he says, The reason you need salvation is because the wrath of God is coming upon the world because of sin, because of unrighteousness. The wrath of God is coming. Not great news. Chapter two, Paul then pivots and looks at the Jews and says, hey, Jews, you're probably thinking I'm talking about the pagans, but guess what? Because of your own hypocrisy, you are actually in a worse position than a good pagan. Paul finishes in verse two by saying, if you don't obey the law, you might as well be a good pagan. What's the benefit then in being a Jew? That's where we get to today. Paul is going to deal with a series of questions or objections or arguments that are going to arise based on some of the things he's taught us already in Romans one and two. And so what I want to talk about today in part is human arguments. Here in verse 5, Paul points out, I'm using a human argument. And human arguments aren't good. And it's not because humans make them. Paul's a human. Jesus was a human. Humans are allowed to make arguments. The problem with what Paul here is calling a human argument is it is short-sighted. It is self-interested. It's overly focused on the here and now, and it's forgetful of God. Human arguments are inferior arguments. Let's take a look at how else Paul thinks about, we have this human mindset that falls short of where we need to be. 
This is in Corinthians, but this is Paul again. Paul says in Corinthians uh, 15, 31 through 33, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So apparently Paul fought some wild animals in Ephesus and he's making the point to his audience, why did I do that? Did I do that for my well-being in the here and now? No. What I'm doing only makes sense if you understand the resurrection from the dead. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the human argument. If there's no God, if there's no eternity, we might as well live it up right here and now. Here and now is all you've got. You might as well enjoy it. And it matters a lot from that perspective, whether you're having a good time or not. Paul has a different perspective, right? Everything for Paul is in light of God, in light of the resurrection from the dead. Let's take a look at another verse. Another problem with human arguments is God tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Human arguments are just inferior. They're lower. God's thoughts are up here. Human arguments are down here. So here's a little life application. Who has better ideas? You or God? God is obviously the correct answer. So why do we resist his will? Why don't we obey more? Because part of us still thinks we have a better idea. Human arguments are just worse arguments. Human thoughts are lower thoughts. Another thing we're going to see in the arguments we look at today, we have these unhealthy tendencies in our hearts, in our minds, in our fallen nature. Proverbs 19.3, the foolishness of man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. We have a tendency to sin and cause problems in our life. And then instead of pointing the finger at ourselves, we point it at God. Something has gone wrong here and we think it's God's fault. It's just a thing that human beings tend to do and we're going to see that in our passages today. All right, so what advantage is there in being a Jew? This is the first human argument that Paul is going to take apart for us. But the argument is actually, I think, something we can all um, relate to. The Jews had a lot of rules, 600 plus rules uh, I have heard that the Jews had to follow. Um, I've read the law, the Torah, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, uh, books like that. If you've read those, I doubt you've gone through and said, you know, I wish I too could try to follow all these rules. Seems like a lot of work. The argument here is simply that if I'm no better off than a pagan, could I just skip all the law stuff? I think Christians have a variation on this. We have a million variations on this, but here's one that I've thought about. Wouldn't the easiest way to get saved would be a deathbed conversion? That would be the easiest way to be a Christian. Die at the last minute, give your life to Jesus, don't deal with any of the Christian religious stuff prior to that point, and then go to heaven. 
If I'm going to go to heaven anyway, once I put my faith in Jesus, why should I want to spend my life serving in the church, doing things like trunk or treat, doing things like church work days? I could just set that all aside and get saved anyway. What benefit is there in being a Christian? What benefit is there in being a Jew? I don't want to do all that work if I don't have to. All right. Paul says in verse two, the benefit is great in every way, much in every way. And his first reason for why it's a great benefit, it's a little different than I would want to think of. I want to think of all the benefits that I'm going to accrue by being a Christian. Paul says, first of all, it's that you're entrusted with the very words of God. The Jews were singled out as a tribe. They were chosen God didn't choose them because they were special. They were special because God chose them. I assume he could have chosen someone else, but he chose the Jews. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them his law. He gave them his prophets. He gave us his word. We didn't have to receive that. It's a wonderful thing to have been simply entrusted with the words of God. Mankind, since the beginning, we have wandered around in confusion and darkness. We want to know what to make of our lives. We want to know what's going on. We are scared. We are uh, in trouble. We need help. We look for it in every possible direction. But we have been given the very words of God, entrusted is the word here, entrusted. God had a message that he wanted delivered to the world and he entrusted it to the Jews. It's a big deal. Imagine you had the cure to cancer. Somebody came to you and said, look, I wrote down here the cure to cancer. I can't say anything about it, but here, you take it. What's your next step? Do nothing with it? No, you've been entrusted with something amazing. Have you ever been... Uh, have you ever wanted to be a part of something big, something amazing? You ever want to be a part of something that really matters? You've been entrusted with the very word of God, you and I. We've got this book. This book has the answers. This book has the truth. And the Jews were in a similar position. They had the law of God. So Paul thinks it's a little bit crazy that you would even ask, what's the benefit And the reason why is because he doesn't look at it from the human point of view. Paul doesn't look at it in terms of, well, how does this benefit me today? How does this make my life easier and more comfortable? He sees a bigger picture, right? He sees God's perspective a little bit better. And he realizes being entrusted with the very words of God is an incredible honor. Everybody in this room, every Christian who's ever lived has been, maybe not every Christian who's ever lived, but every Christian today has this exact same entrustment. You've got the word of God. Not everybody has that. It's an incredible blessing to have received that for ourselves and so that we can be a light to the world. All right. So um, let's look at the next argument. And these arguments, they all overlap a little bit. So having set aside the idea that there's no benefit in being a Jew if it's hard, Paul then turns to a second human argument. In verse 3, he says, What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And that's a little bit 
to me, of a strange argument right out the gates. I'm not exactly sure what he's getting at, so, but I think the idea is this. God made a covenant with his people. God said, I will, I will do these things for you if you agree to obey, if you agree to have faith in me and follow me. Unfortunately, as we all know, they didn't do it. They didn't, the Jews didn't keep their side of the covenant. And so the argument the human argument here is, well, the Jews kind of blew it, so I guess the covenant didn't work, so maybe God should just forget the whole thing. The Jews didn't do their part, maybe we should just not have God having made promises to the Jews, including promises to judge sin and to reward righteousness. Paul responds to this by saying, not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar. And then he cites a psalm, and this is Psalm 51. We're going to spend a little time in Psalm 51. This is from Psalm 51. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. This is not how human beings tend to think. But this passage comes from uh, Psalm 51. So we're going to get to the psalm in just a minute. Paul is citing back to scripture to justify this argument that he is, uh, counter, his counter argument to the human argument. Let's take a look at Job 48. I think this helps us understand a little bit what's going on in this argument. As you know, Job consists of a man making a lot of arguments against God. And as you probably also know, that doesn't actually end up turning out that well for Job, at least the piece where he's trying to argue with God, here's God's response to Job. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Remember, man ruins his way and his heart rages against the Lord. We sin and what we would actually really like to have happen is God then not to be just. We would prefer if God changed who he is so that we can have things a little more comfortable for us right here and now. And God says, you really want me to be a different God because you broke my law, because you broke our covenant? That's how you think this should work, is God should be different than he is because human beings sin. If some were unfaithful, does that nullify God's faithfulness? The psalm that Paul cites to refute this argument is from David, Psalm 51, and this is when he sinned with Bathsheba, and he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he turns and writes this Great, great psalm of repentance. Psalm 51, 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and so that you are justified when you judge. When you judge, David, we all know, was the man after God's own heart. And I think you can see here Why? When David is confronted with his breach of his covenant with God, he doesn't say, you know what, God, let's call it off. Instead, he says, I did evil. I should be judged. 
it's not an unfortunate it's not an unfortunate aspect of God that he judges sin. It's a good thing that God judges sin. And David knew that. David knew that he should be judged for his sin, that God is right. We want a God who judges evil. We don't want a God who says, evil, no big deal. I'm okay with that. God is a God who judges evil. That's who he is. But our human argument is, why don't you not be that way, God? We would prefer if you were not a God who is righteous because your righteousness may or may not work out well for my lifestyle. That's how a human tends to respond to these challenging truths. But God, God stays faithful. And in this case, he's going to be faithful to his covenant with the Jews, which involved, if you obey me, there will be blessings. If you disobey me, there will be curses. There will be punishments. Sin will be judged uh, if you don't obey God. And God is not open and not capable of, frankly, changing who he is. One of the most important truths about God is that he does not change. When God promises, he delivers. God does not change. When he gives his word, he keeps it. And that includes when God tells you, you know, thou shalt not murder, if you murder, God said, thou shalt not murder. He is going to judge that sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be faithful, but he is faithful. And let me just give you an allusion to why this is actually a really good thing. It is a really good thing that God does not change because I don't really want to go into eternity with a God who does change. I want to go into eternity with a God who I know who he is, and that's who he is. He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. If God promises something, that's not going to change. That's who he is. David knew that. David knew that the right response was to acknowledge when he had sinned, was to say, you know what, God, you are right. Your judgment of my sin is correct and it is good. All right. So that brings us to our next argument. Human argument, still trying to wiggle out of this one, right? We have an unlimited capacity for trying to wiggle. Like, all right, well, if that's not it, let me find another way to accommodate my sin. Another thing that human arguments are really focused on is accommodating sin. So this one is, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us. So this is just clever. It's not even really logical. The sinner here is saying, well, it looks like, so God's glorified when he judges my sin, so that's good. Could you let me off the hook for that reason? It's like I sinned, but then God judged it, and we're saying that's good. Why should I get in trouble? This is really just missing the point. God is righteous, and he is glorified in his righteousness because... He judges sin, not because he lets you off the hook. And Paul appeals to something here uh, that's very interesting. He says, certainly not. That argument is bad. That is a human argument. Because if that were true, how could God judge the world? So Paul here is probably specifically appealing to the Jewish sentiment. The Jews knew that all the non-Jews were going to be judged, They knew that they were the chosen people of God and they were surrounded by wicked people and those wicked people were going to be judged. God was not going to let evil stand 
forever. So he's saying to the Jews, listen, you all know that God's going to judge the world. How is he going to do that? He's going to use the standard of righteousness. Where Romans gets really spiritually tricky for us is that we all agree that God is going to judge. We just didn't think it was going to be us. Romans is going to keep putting us back under the same judgment as everyone else, including the Jews. You know, the Jews are bummed out. They thought, gosh, we thought we were the chosen people and we were good to go. Turns out we're going to be judged too. It's uncomfortable. But um, the Jews knew that judgment was, would come. Today, we don't share that specific understanding, yet we still all share the general belief in justice. We may disagree about who should be punished, but nobody thinks that if you show up in heaven, you're going to be living in a mansion next door to Adolf Hitler. Nobody thinks we should go to our worst prisons and just let everybody out. We all know that there's evil that must be judged, right? So we have a similar sentiment to the Jews. We know that there's evil that must be judged. We just like to think it's not going to be us. But from that, if you know that evil must be judged, if you know that there's wickedness out there that must be corrected, then what you're saying is God has a standard of righteousness and he has to enforce it. If he doesn't do that, then evil won't be judged. And we all know, the Jews knew it and we still know it today, that evil can't just be let off the hook. That's not the way to respond to evil. That's not who God is either. God will judge the world. All right, finally, One more argument. The human argument says, I'm sorry, let me back up. One of the things about human arguments is we are forgetful of God, including specifically who he is. God is righteous and he doesn't change. Always has been, always will be. Human arguments are not that concerned about who God is, I wouldn't mind in my human flesh if God, in my case, decided not to be righteous. How about with me, you just be, you just let me do whatever I want. Because I don't want to be judged for my sin. I don't want to be held accountable. But the reality is that's not who God is. And human arguments are happy to say, you know what, why don't you not be who you are, God? Why don't you change your character? Instead of saying, God, you are who you are, and I need to I need to come into conformity with who you are. I need to acknowledge uh, who you are. God's character, God's character is central to everything. Who he is, is necessary for us to continue to live and move and have our being. We exist in God. Who he is, is necessary to trusting that our eternity is secure with him because he has promised that he will uh, take us into his home if we put our faith in his son, Jesus. We want God not to change. We want his promises to last forever when we understand it correctly. All right, one more human argument, and Paul at this point is getting exasperated, actually. So here's the next argument. All right, well, if my sin leads to God's grace, grace is good, so I should sin more, right? Notice how human arguments, we're always trying to, we're trying to, we always try to coddle our sin, We're always trying to protect it like it's something good. 
Let us do evil that good may result. Here's another bad idea that kind of makes sense from a human standpoint. Grace is going to cover over my sin. Paul himself later in uh, chapter 5 verse 20 is going to say where sin increased, grace increased more. Well, if there's enough grace to cover over my sin, if there's going to be enough grace, if it's going to abound more and more, that's great. I should keep sinning. Notice the real goal there is to keep sinning. You're not actually concerned about maximizing God's glory. You're actually concerned about continuing to do whatever it is you are doing and not getting in trouble for it. Paul responds to this pretty starkly. Their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. It's a harsh word. Thinking back to Job, however, when human beings argue with God, it tends to get a little rough for the human beings. You're going to get some sharp replies, and here's one of them. If in your human self you are arguing to accommodate your sin, if in your human self you are arguing to change God's character, to accommodate you and your divergence from his will, your condemnation is just. You have set yourself up against the righteous God. Grace is the cure for sin. And there is grace to cover all of our sin. It is the cure. It is the balm of Gilead. It is the salvation of our souls. And it cost Jesus Christ his life to get it. You don't throw it around willy-nilly. You can have a cure to a disease. It doesn't mean you go out and try to get the disease. We can cure malaria. Anybody want malaria? It's curable. No. This is why Paul is a little bit exasperated and doesn't actually spend a lot of time explaining this argument. He thinks this is a really bad argument. Their condemnation is just. Jesus talks about not throwing pearls before swine. And what we say must always, always be loving and graceful. But there's also a time to say, cut it out. Their condemnation is just. This argument has no standing before God. Should we just end there? Their condemnation is just. That's a, that's a harsh way to end the sermon. And notice there the language. Their condemnation is just. Out there. Particularly in that direction. The downtown direction. Is that who Paul is pointing at? Um, Romans is tricky because it's always changing perspectives on us. And I sort of think Paul does that on purpose to kind of give us a little spiritual workout. Just a chapter ago, Romans 2.1, he says, You therefore, you have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. If their condemnation is just, our condemnation would be equally just. This is the human response to God's law. We run from it because we're scared because we haven't gotten to the end of the message. This is a passage out of the middle of Romans, and uh, I said at the beginning, it's a very long argument. It's going to continue for weeks and weeks, and it's great. This is such a wonderful book. The story does not begin with condemnation, 
nor does it end with condemnation. Paul is going to say a lot more. These first two chapters, three chapters, are really sort of the bad news. The bad news that we are all under sin. We are all under condemnation in and of ourselves. Let's go back to Psalm 54. Because Psalm 54 is where we got this language about how God is right when he judges. What else does it say in Psalm, excuse me, Psalm 51? Psalm 51, 16 through 7. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I'm really glad, actually, that God doesn't change because he said things like this. I'm really glad that God said a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise because though our condemnation would be just, we are not condemned if we repent. There's an argument that was not addressed in the previous human arguments we talked about. And that argument is, God, you are right. God, you are right, and I am a sinner. But here's my argument. You should forgive me. God, you should forgive me. Why? Because your loving kindness never fails and because of the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. That's an argument that God actually accepts. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. The arguments that we should make to God do not involve blaming him for our situation, for our sins, nor do they involve changing God's character. I wish you weren't who you told me you are, God. I want you to be someone different, God. That argument is going to get you to their condemnation is just. But there's some very good news. This book goes on for 12 more chapters, and Paul has a lot more to say about this situation. Uh, The truth is, We don't even actually need to make the argument. There is one standing before the Father right now who is already arguing in our defense. We have an advocate before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is pleading his blood for us right now. That's the argument that God accepts. A broken and a contrite heart that says, though I have sinned, You are merciful, O Lord, and you have given your son, Jesus Christ, and his precious blood covers over all my sins. That is an acceptable argument to God. That is a godly argument. It's the argument that David made without the specificity of Jesus, and it's the argument that we can make even better because we know that we have that advocate before the Father. God doesn't need any sacrifices from us. He doesn't need us to try so much harder He needs us to put our faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us, and we'll get back to worship. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for diagnosing our disease. Help us to see it for what it is, a spiritual disease. And thank you even more for giving us the cure, the grace in your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to embrace repentance and faith in your son, Jesus. And we thank you for giving us the good news that you accept that argument, that you accept that argument as justifying us for your glory 
and for our good. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.